The following is presented to you by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Christ our God to 
want to tell you a story. Not just a normal story. This is an amazing, wonderful story. The most compelling story of all time. This is the story of God coming to earth to redeem mankind. Now, to help you understand the weight of this story, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to start where the Bible starts. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he did this ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing. He created light, darkness, the stars, the moon, the earth, all the planets, everything out of nothing. And he also created life. He created all manner of vegetation and plants. He created all the animals. But on the sixth day, God created a special creature. 
Out of the dust of the ground, God created a man. And he called that man Adam. This creation was the pinnacle of God's creation. He was the apex of everything that God had created. And he gave Adam charge over all of creation. He was different. He was made in the image of God. He had a self-consciousness. He was, he was different than the animals. God breathed into him and gave him life. And when God was done creating, he said, it was good. But there was one thing that God said wasn't good. It wasn't good for this man to be alone. So God took Adam and he, he had him fall into a deep sleep and he took a chunk out of his side and he formed another creature, a woman. Man's perfect complement, his helper. And he brought this woman to Adam. And Adam said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It was a woman and he named her Eve. Now, Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship, in the, and they were in this perfect garden that God had created. And God told them, you can eat from any of the trees that are in this garden. But he gave them one rule. He said, the tree that's in the middle of the garden, from that tree, you cannot eat from. On the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. Well, Adam and Eve weren't alone in the garden. As I said, there were all manner of creatures in the garden. And there was one specific creature. There was a serpent. Not just any serpent. There was a serpent who was possessed by Satan. The father of lies. The one who God created good as an angel and who rebelled against God and was thrown out of heaven. This one possessed this, this serpent this beast who prowled amongst the garden foliage. And this serpent saw Adam and Eve just relaxing in the garden. And the serpent approached Eve and he talked to her. He asked her a question. He said, did God really say you should not eat from this tree? Eve, listen to me. You will not die, but rather your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You see, the serpent sought to subvert what God had spoken. He wanted to make Eve think that he was withholding something good from her. And she listened to him. She looked at the tree, and she, 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 she saw the fruit and says, hmm, it does look kind of good. And she reached up, and she took from the tree, and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her. And from that point on, this single event would send shockwaves throughout time, plunging the entire human race into sin. And after this, Adam and Eve did this, shame came upon them. They were, they were riddled with guilt. They were gripped with shame as they looked at each other and they saw that they were naked. And now they, they felt guilt for that and they covered themselves with fig leaves. And then God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve found themselves hiding from their creator. God found them. Even though they lived in this perfect place, this perfect garden, with everything they needed, they chose to disobey their creator. 
And God cursed them for this. He cursed the man, he cursed the woman, and he cursed the serpent. For the woman, she would have extreme anguish and pain in childbirth. And the man would have to work hard the ground, spend all of his life toiling the earth just to survive. From here, all manner of pain and sorrow and suffering entered the world. All humanity now would experience that most unnatural event, death. Everyone would now die. And this tragedy completely changed the relationship between God and man. Now there was this huge chasm that no man could traverse. Yet in this curse on Satan, in the curse on the serpent, we see a glimmer of hope. In in Genesis 3.15, God promises that one in the lineage of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. In Genesis 3.15, at the beginning, it says this. This is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise of the coming serpent crusher is woven all throughout Scripture. We see this this promise of this king who's going to rule over this kingdom where Adam failed. He will come and he will not fail. He will crush the head of the serpent. And we see it all throughout Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, to be sure, friends, after the fall into sin, Adam and Eve were cast from the garden. They had to live with the consequence of their sin until the day that they would physically die. They'd have to wait to see this great promise fulfilled. Shame's now to speak. 
Well, after they left the garden, things didn't get better. The first murder came just one generation after the garden. Adam and Eve's son Cain murdered his brother in a jealous rage. And sin just increased exponentially as the population increased. Genesis 6-5 tells us, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. This progressive sin just grieved the heart of God. As he saw sin just getting worse and worse and worse. So at this point, God decides to destroy the earth. After generations of this depravity, God judges the earth with a worldwide flood. He brings rain on the earth. There's one man, though. One man that he saves. And this man's name is Noah. 
He tells Noah to build an ark. So Noah builds an ark and he brings his family in the ark. The waters rise and everybody on the earth is killed. The waters recede and Noah comes out of the ark. Noah was a righteous and faithful man. And after the waters receded, God made a covenant with Noah in which he promised to never destroy the earth with a worldwide flood again. So could this man, could Noah possibly be the serpent crusher? He's a righteous man. He's faithful. Could this be it? Alas, Noah sins and Noah dies. This is not the promised serpent crusher. Well, many nations come from Noah, from his three sons, but all of them worship idols and practice all manner of perverse immoralities. This wonderful paradise of the garden just seemed so far away. But in the midst of, of such depravity, 390 years after Noah's sons are born, God calls another man. This man's name was Abram. We know him as Abraham. God made a promise to him that he would bless him and make him the father of a great nation, that he would be given a land to inhabit, that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. Abraham's family would be God's chosen people, the people of Israel. The Jewish nation came from Abraham. They're a special people set apart unto God. They would be called to be a light to the world. And this family did become a great nation. They became a great nation. And it belonged to them the adoption of God, the glory of God, the covenants of God, the law of God, the worship of God, and the promises of God. So could this, could this man be the serpent crusher? Could this be the king, the one who is to come? It wasn't to be. Abraham and his family would have their own array of sins. Their lives were riddled with deception, idolatry, with failing to love their covenant-keeping God. Now, as this story continues, it moves forward past Abraham, past Isaac, past Jacob, and even past Joseph. We see God's people enter into 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And at the end of this 400 years, God raises up yet another man. And this man was named Moses. Moses comes on the scene and delivers the people from bondage. Could this be it? Could, could Moses be the one? No. Moses was a sinner. And these people no sooner than left Egypt and they started grumbling and, and worshiping idols once again. So we continue to move on. As we enter into the time of the kings and the prophets, we see moments of greatness for this nation. Moments where it's, it's shining like a city on a hill. We see other great men of faith like David. David was a man after God's own heart. But in the end, immorality and compromise creep back in because of sin. God would not stand by and be idly mocked as this took place. The wickedness and spiritual adultery had to be chastised. So what was once a great nation is reduced to rubble by a pagan nation and brought into exile once again. 
These people who readily worship these false gods rather than Yahweh, their maker. Rather than worshiping their redeemer, their provider. They were dragged away to be slaves in a pagan land. And at that point, the light and the promise that was given to Abraham, it just seemed to be put out.
Well, it did seem bleak, friends. The light seemed to be out, but there was still a flicker of hope. And by the providential hand of God, the people were released from captivity to return to their land. But the land that they returned to was a broken land. It was a shell of what it had been before. Now, they they returned, and they began to rebuild, starting with the temple, And some of the elderly people who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple began to weep because they saw the shell of a temple that was being built. Nonetheless, the people of God had a fresh desire to please him. They wanted to please God. But once again, this was short-lived. Soon they were focusing on all the wrong things. They began practicing a religion that was all about them and not about Yahweh, their God. The sin that permeated the heart of Adam and Eve had continued after the fall, and it was still in full vigor. The wickedness of the human heart cannot be underestimated. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, all the ways of man had shown themselves to fail. All the kings of Israel had fallen. All those other godly men had gone astray. Noah, Abraham, Moses, and yes, even the mighty King David had fallen into sin. There was still no serpent crusher, no redeemer sent by God, no king to come for these people. And then there was 400 years of silence. All hope, once again, seemed to be gone. At this point, Caesar ruled the world. The mighty Roman legions were outrageously cruel and and heavy-handed to God's people. There was no hope. Surely, Psalm 14 echoed in the heads of these Jews, there is no one righteous, no, not one. They could find no salvation. In a mere man. And that's when it happened. At this desperate time, at mankind's darkest hour, the world was sent a great light. The serpent crusher had revealed. The the righteous arm of the Lord was shown God's promise to send one who would not fail, who would not falter, who would not disappoint. This promise was revealed. It was realized when God himself came to redeem his people, giving them new hearts, removing their wicked hearts of stone, and giving them hearts of flesh. The long-expected Savior had come. You may be seated. Come, thou, thou, 
it finally happened. God's emissary came to earth. But did this mighty king, this majestic prince of peace, did he come in pomp and circumstance, ready to be served and waited on as Caesar? Was he a handsome and dignified man, great stature and easy to look upon? No. He had no special form or majesty about him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men. 
He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is a king, be sure of that, but he came as a servant. His conception was presumed to be nefarious. A virgin with child? Yeah, right. His birth was inconsequential. He was born essentially in a barn with animals. This was no place for a king. And this was surely no place for the king of kings to be born. The Lord of lords, the mighty I am, to be born in a stable. Nonetheless, there he was. He whom the prophets spoke about, born among the dung and the cattle. What a scandalous reality. What a, an outrageous truth this is. This is our perfect, holy Lord and Savior. He emptied himself. And in humility, he was made low. to bring us hope and now a virgin bears a son the time to save the world has come humble shepherds run in haste to see the one the angels praise in cattle stall they find a girl who holds a hope of all the Christ is 
been um, a tremendous evening uh, so far. I'm just uh, amazed at the kindness and mercy of God to allow us to be able to do this. Uh, amazed at the talent that the Lord's placed in our church as well. We're thankful for the musicians and all that have served so far so well tonight. We have been uh, telling a story of redemption, um, and that's really the whole focus of this, is we, we want to tell the gospel story. We are unapologetic about that. Uh, we will continue to proclaim that message until our Savior returns. It is the only message that will bring any hope to any person 
in this world. Matt just sang a song, What Child Is This? And the song partially answers that question, but for just a few moments tonight, and I'm not going to take a lot of time, uh, but I, I do want to answer that question, what child is this? What child was this? Four points. Every sermon's got some points. Four points. First of all, he was God. He was God. He is God. And maybe the best uh, summary of this is John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Think about those three phrases in, those, in that verse there, in the beginning was the Word, meaning before time, before anything existed, before the creation of the universe, before anything that we currently have, there was the Word. I like how one writer describes this, he was always wasing. He was from the beginning. And John goes on to tell us in the next phrase in John 1, 1, that the Word was with God. This Word, this communication of God to us was with God. He was face to face with God in God's presence, enjoying intimate conversation and communion with Him. And maybe the most important part of that verse is at the end of it, the third phrase in John 1, verse 1, and the Word was God. Incredible. There was perfect fellowship amongst the Godhead. There was perfect communication. There was perfect relationship between the members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all enjoying perfect communion with one another. This is who this baby is. How do we know that he's God? Just jot some, jotted some things down here to, to confirm the fact that he is God. Jesus has divine names. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord. He is the Holy One. He is the first and the last. He possesses divine names. That's how we know He's God. And in addition to that, He has divine attributes. He is eternal and sovereign and omnipotent and omniscient and unchanging and the truth. So we know that He's God because of His attributes. We also know that he's God because of his divine works. He was involved in creation, and he forgave sins, and he raised people from the dead, and he healed the sick. Listen, if God comes to earth, you would expect him to have power over the creation, and that's exactly what we see. He also received divine worship. Jesus is God. That's incredible to think about the fact that when we know Jesus, we know His Father because Christ has explained the Father. John 1 verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God has explained Him. To see Christ is to see God. But divinity alone cannot rescue anyone. Divinity alone cannot save anyone. So the second point is that Jesus is man. What child is this? Number one, he's God. Number two, he is man. And what we're celebrating here tonight is the fact that God stepped into time and eternity. He left his home and he came to dwell here among us. He added humanity to his deity. 
He emptied himself, and most of us think that means that, that he subtracted something from him, and that's not the case. Christ didn't subtract anything from him. He actually emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself by adding humanity to his deity. I read this verse this morning, Hebrews 2.14, says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Since you and I share in flesh and blood, in order to have a redeemer, we needed a redeemer who also shared in flesh and blood. This is the glory of the incarnation. How do you put God in a body? How do you take the transcendent, majestic, glorious, sovereign, self-existent, eternal God and put him in a body? That's the glory of the incarnation. We know he was human because he had a human birth. He came into the world just like we come into the world. We know that he had a human body as well, just like ours. He had flesh and bones as we have. We also know he was human because he experienced human growth. Luke 2 52 says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, that's mental growth, and stature, that's physical growth, and in favor with God, that's spiritual growth, and in favor with men, that's social growth. He had all the growth that we enjoy and experience as humans. He also had human limitations and weaknesses. He was tired, he was thirsty, he was hungry, and he had human emotions. He wept when his dear friend Lazarus died. What child is this? God and man, 100% both, joined in perfect union in one person of Christ. So he's God, he is man. Thirdly, he's king. And we've been talking about this the last couple of Sundays here and we talked about it this morning. Who is this child? What is he like? He is the king. He is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. He is the one who has anticipated to come on the throne of David to be the greater son of David and to take the throne that God promised him so that he could rule and reign with all power and all authority. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 say, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. What kind of king is this? He's a king who's going to have a kingdom that's authoritative. His dominion was given to him, and it's a glorious kingdom, and it's a universal kingdom, and it's an everlasting kingdom that will never go away. He came once at his first coming to institute that kingdom, and he was rejected, and he was killed, and he's coming again a second time to establish that kingdom. This is why the Magi came seeking the one who was born, the king of the Jews. What child is this? He's God. He's man. He's king. Fourth, he's savior. He's our savior. John 1 29, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you can't appreciate that verse until you understand the Old Testament. 
that every time someone sinned, they had to go kill an animal because that's the penalty for sin. Sin requires death. The wages of sin is death. And so for many thousands of years leading up to Christ, there was a visual reminder every day as animals were sacrificed and the blood ran deep in the ravines of Israel, reminding them that their sin brought death. And then 2,000 years ago comes the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the, the, the sacrifices of bulls and goats could not take away any sin. It just covered it until the true lamb came to pay the ultimate price. Beloved, this is what we are redeemed with. Peter tells us, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Christ came to die, and Paul never got over it. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That should be your testimony. I'm the greatest of all sinners. And yet we have a great Savior. That's the message of Christmas. Not just presents and lights and food and parties and gifts and trees. It's about God who entered time and space as the king who then laid down his life for us to be saved. This is the message that we are unapologetic here about. And if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then let me just tell you the bad news. You are very lost. You are under God's wrath. You, you will be punished for your sin because uh, sin requires death. And so you will die. And not only will you face a physical death, you will face an eternal death as you have to stand before the Lord God who created you and gave you a mandate for how to live in his word. And if you choose not to come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will face his wrathful judgment and you will face your maker. And he will one day say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. Those are the scariest words any person could ever hear. Part of this is understanding that you have to be perfect to go to heaven. That's the way it is. God is perfect. His son is perfect. The place that he dwells is perfect. Angels are perfect. The, the, the only people that God lets into heaven are perfect people. And let me break it to you, that's none of us. You have to be perfect to get into heaven. You say, well, it's impossible, then nobody's going, exactly. Except when you place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, a monumental transaction occurs. As he credits your sin to Jesus and credits Jesus' perfection to you. So that when you stand before your maker someday, he says, why should I let you into my heaven you can say, because your son's righteousness has covered me. And I'm perfect because of his work. That's the message of the gospel. 
And if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never come to a point where you've understood that you are lost and under God's wrath and that you need a Savior, then our prayer is that you would come to that point and you would exchange your sin for his righteousness and you would enjoy not only life now, but life eternal. That's what Christmas is about. Would you pray with me? Our God, we come before you this evening. What a what a privilege and joy it is to meet together with your church and to rehearse the story of redemption, to, to hear the gospel told again and again and again, and it's never old to us. Lord, we love this message. We love this story, and we love, more importantly, the fact that your son has come to accomplish the work that we could never do. We can't work our way to you. We can't earn our salvation. It's all by grace, and it's all by mercy. And Lord, we want to come tonight to praise you and to worship you for the fact that your son has come to give us life. Lord, we love you. We love the fact that you loved us first and sought us out when we were the least lovable. So as we conclude our service here in just a few moments, may you receive all honor and glory and praise. And for any who are here tonight who don't know you, would you draw them to yourself tonight? And would tonight be the night that they embrace Christ as their Lord and Savior? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The snake crusher did come. And we rejoice in that. The promise that was made in the garden many, many, many years ago. As was just explained, it, it was fulfilled. And he came to take that punishment because although he came as a baby in a manger, he grew up to be a man. And he suffered immensely. He was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was whipped. And he was hung on a cross to die for the sins of the world. But that wasn't all. On that cross, the wrath of God was poured on Jesus Christ. It wasn't just that he was crucified. That was part of it. That was horrible. There was thousands of men crucified every day in Rome. But while Jesus was on the cross, the wrath of God was poured on him. Any other human being would have immediately just been destroyed. But Jesus Christ took it all. The Bible says he, he drank it to the dregs. And then he bowed his head and he said, It is finished. The work of salvation was done. The long-awaited serpent crusher that had been, they've been waiting for since Genesis 3.15 had arrived. But he didn't stay dead. No, no, three days later, the Bible tells us he rose from the dead, conquering death, showing that that sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. He rose from the dead three days later. So does that mean, well, now everybody goes to heaven because he conquered death? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No. 
We've got to do something. We've got to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. We've got to put our faith in Christ. We've got to turn away from our sins. We've got to see our sins the way God sees them and hate them, despise them, and desperately run to Jesus Christ and ask him to cleanse us, make us new creatures, because we hate our sin. You don't just say, I said a prayer. I trusted in Jesus. That's nowhere in the Bible. You've got to put him on like you would put a parachute on. If you were in an airplane and it was headed towards the ground and I told you, hey, there's a parachute under your seat, but you do nothing, the plane crashes, you're going to die. You've got to take the parachute out. You've got to put it on and jump out and pull the cord, trusting that parachute with your life 100%. And you've got to trust Christ 100% with your whole life and follow him. And then you'll be born again. You'll be a new creature. Don't wait another day, as Todd said. Go to him today. Confess your sins. Ask him for forgiveness and begin following him. Because he he came as a baby once, but he will come again. And this time when he comes, he comes in judgment with a sword, striking down once and for all that wretched serpent, along with those who have rejected Christ and who have followed the serpent. Friends, he will reign over a new heavens and a new earth. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to read out loud with me. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And to the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We long for his return, don't we? And while we wait, we worship. So come, let us worship tonight. Let us worship Christ and celebrate his birth. Celebrating the fact that God came down from heaven to make a way for us. What a story of redemption. As the angels declared in Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom He is pleased. Would you please stand?
candles out. Thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight. Um, we would love to serve you and minister to you in any way we can. If there's any way we can pray with you or care for you uh, before you leave tonight, let us know how to do that. There's a box towards the back of the auditorium. You can put those candles in. And then we do have a dessert reception down our lower level. We'd love for you to just uh, spend some time fellowshipping, enjoying um, some time together, and just enjoying an evening of uh, fellowship afterwards. So thank you so much for coming. You're dismissed.
been listening to a presentation from Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan. No part of this recording may be edited or distributed without prior written consent. For more information, go to mbcmi.org.